I'd like for you to turn to two places in Scripture, a very familiar theme this morning. But I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's look at verses 18 to 21. And then the other one is Ephesians chapter 1. So it's 1 Peter chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 1. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your conversation or manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. My question this morning, or my, it is in the form of a question, but it's a theme I want to use for our communion this morning is, why is there power in the blood? Why is there power in the blood? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. A brief comment there. It is the grace of God which brings anything good to us. A man who is a sinner, a woman, a person who is a sinner, and is separated from God and cut off from God, has no chance to ever have fellowship with God. It is God who initiates the whole process and all the events that take place for you to be able to have fellowship with God. We call that grace, unmerited, undeserved favor from God to do something that you could never do yourself. A God doesn't have to do that, but he chooses to do that because of his love for you. And he said that we were redeemed, brought back from the sentence of death under the penalty of sin by blood, by the blood of Jesus. So the question again today is, why is there power in the blood? Remember the song we sang, there is power, power, wonder working power in the blood, in the blood of the lamb. And I'm asking you this morning as Christians and in teaching this morning, on the basis of what, as Christians, those who proclaim to other people, who witness to others, who talk to neighbors and friends and strangers and so forth, on the basis of what is there power in the blood? You say, well, because of Jesus, then based on what? What is it about Jesus that gives us this redemptive power? How would you explain that to somebody else? We know there's power in the blood, obviously. Remember the Passover in Egypt in, in Exodus 12? And God said, in this way, the firstborn will be spared and death will not come. You will take a lamb, and he gives them all the descriptions of the lamb, and on a certain day you will kill the lamb and you will catch its blood in the basin. Now the lamb lived in the house, the kids got used to it, it became a little pet, and they're darling little cute little things and then you kill it. Something that meant a whole lot to you, and they kill it, they catch the blood in the basin, then with a hyssop, they go outside and they mark the doorposts and over the top and down the sides. And when the angel of death went through Egypt, they could not enter that house. There was a barrier between the inhabitants of the house and the angel of death, and the barrier was the blood. When this death angel came through Egypt, when they saw the blood, they had to pass over that house. And Passover is one of the three major feasts in Israel every year in, in Jewish history. But there was power in the blood. You know, if you take the ark, Noah's ark, you know, the ark is just wood. It'll sink after a while. It'll get soaked with water and it'll just sink in a flood. But if you cover it with something that keeps the water out, whatever covers that ark is a barrier between you and certain death. And that pitch was put about the ark. We call it just some kind of a bitumen tar-like stuff. And they covered that whole ark. And that was what kept the water out, kept the destroyer out. Now, if that's the type of the blood, and I believe it is, one of those things hidden in the Old Testament, then you see again that there is power in blood to prevent the destroyer from coming into your life. 
you know, we plead the blood all the time, and people think, well, you have no basis for doing that. Well, that depends on how you believe and what you see. I plead the blood because I believe there's power in the blood. The Bible speaks of this subject so much. In fact, the more I began to look at this subject yesterday and do some research, it's an enormous amount of material in the Bible about the blood. And I thought this is going to turn into a month-long series, and I just want a communion message this morning. So I thought, well, let's just pin it down to this. To Christian people, why is there power in the blood? Well, let's begin with this thing this morning about the origin of blood. Where did blood come from? You say, well, God created everything. I know, but in what way was blood created? I'm not trying to make this complicated, but just how do we get blood? Because in Genesis 2, God, remember, he made out of the dust of the earth, he made a form, a figure that the Bible says was in his image. And this image was nothing more than a lifeless clay figure. It was a dead thing. There was nothing to it. It was just the dust of the earth. And the Bible said God breathed into it. The Hebrew word means puff. He just like that. He breathed into this lifeless figure or breathed on it. And it says, and man became. It didn't take a while. It just happened. Man became a living soul. Now, what that means is that when he breathed into this image and life came to it, that instantly this clay figure had lungs and heart and kidneys and livers and brains and all the complicated things that go with the human body the enormous complication of the nervous system or the eyes or the, how the brain functions and all the glands and the endocrine glands and the hormones produced by them and all the effects that all of this has on the human body. It was all created in an instant, but none of those things work. None of those things have any effect or really any usefulness if there's no blood because the blood is what circulates through your body, what, twice every two minutes or something, several quarts. Your blood carries oxygen to the rest of your body. You realize that every time you breathe something in, it goes into your lungs, of course. And in the lungs is where the exchange takes place between arteries and veins, and you breathe off the bad stuff, and you get new oxygen, and you send it to the cells. And you snort cocaine, or you smoke pot, or you're around chemicals all the time, you're breathing them. That's what your blood is transporting to all the cells in your body. And you put alien substances like glue or gasoline toxins like that, smoke. And it has sort of a Charlie horse effect on your cells. And you get this stimulus, and it takes a while for this thing to calm down because your body has just been introduced to something horrible. And there's this feeling. But that feeling, which lasts for a while and maybe longer with some than others, has a damaging effect on your body because the more you do it, the more your blood is taking poison to all your body. That's why a lot of young people 30 years old look old. Or they look 40 years old. 40 years old, they look 60 years old. Because the body has been affected by all this stuff. When you eat something, it's like you've got a little foreman down in your stomach, and he's down there waiting, and you send stuff down there because it's his job to direct the, you know, the blood's going to take it to here. You need it over there. Blood does everything. And the foreman sometimes looked up at you and said, what are you thinking up there? What do you want me to do with this? You know, you send some junk down there. My goodness. Well, again. A whole lot of what goes in there is really not useful. And your blood, though, has to take it somewhere. I know where the blood puts them out, it puts it on these little saddles over here on the side. (laughs) But the blood does it all. The blood does everything. In fact, the Scripture says several times the life of the soul or the life of the flesh is in the blood. And without blood, there is no life. You may have an image, you may have a likeness, but it's dead. Because the life of the flesh, you got to remember that today, the life of the flesh is in the blood. So this is the way it started. This is where we got blood. Blood came from the Spirit of God. God went, and instantly there was blood in a body. And God himself said, like in Genesis 9, the life that you have is in your blood. And I know this is true from the natural world. If your blood is healthy, you're healthy. If 
you're giving your body good things to deal with, then your blood will deal with it well. And that if you are careful about things, you will be a healthier person. I don't count on stuff like that. I don't count on foods and, and smells to keep me well. I count on Jesus Christ and his word to do that. But I'm just saying that there are times that wisdom would dictate that you don't smoke that you don't put alcohol in your body, that you don't do a lot of dumb things that people do and say, oh, I'm free, I'm free. You're not ever free to sin. You're never free to hurt yourself. You're never free to be stupid. God never called us to be free like that. But we are free from all the things of our past. And then we got a problem after we get the picture of the blood. We got a problem because Adam, who became a living soul, sinned. That is, he rebelled against God, he disobeyed God, he did something that he should not do. And when he did that, Paul writes in Romans 5, he said, For as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, he said, so death passed upon all men. Now, would that mean us? See, I didn't sin. What Adam did, I didn't do it. Why, as we would say, why should I be condemned for what he did? It's not fair. But being his offspring, whatever he did, is passed on to the whole human race. When he sinned, he died. Now, he didn't die just instantly. Physically, it took, what, 900 years for him to die? It took a long time for Adam to die. He lived a long time. Death's clock began to tick the moment he rebelled, the moment he ate of the fruit of that tree, knowing that he should not and did not prevent his wife from eating. The moment that happened, the clock of death begins to tick, and it's ticking in everybody's life today. Everything that is made of the dust of this earth, which was cursed, is going back to the dust of this earth. Now, the man on the inside saved to go to heaven, but there'll be a day, there'll be a new body and so forth. That's another story. And redemption will be full and complete. But in this whole process of sin, what happened, and this is the system, when Adam sinned, everybody born after him is born in sin with the nature of sin. We're all born dying. Death is lodged in every human being that's ever been born. In fact, the whole human race, all of living things, all animals are dying. Everybody dies. When you live, you die. You're a living dead. And so we can't stop that. The aging process takes place. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And there's not much that any sinner can ever look forward to in this life, living his brief life like a vapor of smoke. He can live here a while and do a few things and try his best to have a good time and make a good go at it on this earth. But he's going to die. And the whole world lives like it'll never happen. Every day, death creeps a little closer. And people are living like, oh, not me. I'm death proof. And yet every day... It just keeps coming closer. Nobody knows the day of their death. Nobody knows how it's going to happen. You just know it's going to happen. Every funeral you've ever been to is what sin has done to mankind. So like Paul said in the book of Romans, he said, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by that sin, so that sentence of death is passed to all his people. And he was the first one, so that would include us. This happened because in a temptation... Sin conceived itself in temptation. Adam didn't have to sin. He chose to sin. It was a moral thing. It's a personal choice that he made. And it affected me and it affected you and my children. We are all the result of what Adam did. And so we're all doomed. The wages of sin is death. The Bible says all have sinned, not some. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were born with the ability to sin and the inability to live right. You don't have to teach a child to do wrong. Just let them grow up. They'll do wrong. The Bible said that the wicked are estranged in the womb, and as soon as they go forth from the womb, they lie. The psalmist said, in sin did my mother conceive me. You can't escape it. You can't escape it. Everybody born needs to be saved. Everybody born needs to receive a new nature because the old one came from Adam. We call it the Adamic nature. 
It's a sin nature. And it just naturally takes a course away from God to do something that God must judge. It's the way it works. Jesus said about, he said, you're of your father, the devil. For from the beginning, he was a liar. And he gained control of the human race at Adam's sin so that all men are held under the power of sin. Sin has dominion over man. Just look around and anywhere you want to go, anywhere you want to go, just look at people and you'll see the effects of sin and the acts of sin. People are ornery and mean and selfish and, and rude and unkind and and thoughtless and unthankful all over the world. And the families are like that, people are like that, and there's no solution, they say. We've crossed the point of no return. That might be true, I don't know. All I can say is that it doesn't take us long to look at a sinful world and see what happened when Adam sinned. We were all made sinners, and we have the nature of our father, Adam, our earthly father. We all sprang from him. And so the wages of sin is death. Easton in his Bible dictionary said this, because of Adam's first sin, all his posterity came into the world in a state of sin and condemnation. That is, a state of moral corruption and two, a state of guilt, having judicially imputed to them the guilt of Adam's first sin. Now, whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. That's the way it is because of what Adam did. We read about it in the Bible. That's the way it happened. The greatest thing that happened with that is the loss of fellowship with God. You see, in the garden, God and Adam had fellowship. They talked. Everything was perfect. There was no sin. There was no law until God made one law. A law that was good. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you'll die. Just don't do that. That's one law. As that give the devil one thing to use against man to slay him. Only one law. But if there was no law, there could be no sin. If there was no law, if there was nothing from God that says don't do this, there could never be a wrong that man could ever do. You could do anything you want to. But when God has declared a right and a wrong, a right way and a wrong way, then sin's possibility comes. Paul wrote this once. He said, for I was alive once without the law. Then the commandment came, sin revived. It was always there. Sin revived, and I died. He didn't die biologically. He died spiritually. He lost contact, association, fellowship, consciousness of God. Most people don't care about anything about that. But in sin, man lost his fellowship with God. Remember that verse in Isaiah 59 too? For your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God that he will not hear. Sins and iniquities separate between you and God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Now that's what happens. Now people without any care about God, living there, you know, I'm doing my own thing. This doesn't mean anything to them. They're on a course of death anyway. They will die one day and nobody will care. They'll be done. But for the Jewish man under the law, he began to realize that something's wrong here. I'm cut off from God. The prophet said, your sins separate between you and me. I won't hear you when you pray. You can't come to me now because you're a sinner. You're sinful. Your nature is sinful. I am holy. I can't have regard for something that is sinful, so we're cut off. You're under the sentence of death. A curse is on your life. Curse meaning you are incapable or powerless to do anything about it. That's what a curse does. You are under a sentence of death, and you can't change it. You can go to church. You can try to do better and shape up, hope you won't ship out and all of that, but you can't do anything about it. If God doesn't provide a way for you to get out from under this, you're doomed. If there's never a day he approaches you and breaks your heart because of your sin, you're still doomed. All of mankind is doomed. Only God can shed light to a human heart to let them see how doomed they are and how much they need to be saved. If they never have that experience, they stay as they are. They live their whole life like that. They never get right. 
The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. John 9, 31 says, now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a doer of his will, him he heareth and so forth. So there is this plague that sin lays upon a man. So bad that if God doesn't quicken you, like in Ephesians 2, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. How did you get into trespasses and sins? Well, you committed your own, but you were naturally inclined to sin and to do your own selfish, iniquitous thing from birth because of Adam's sin. That's the way we were all born into this world. We don't have fellowship with God. We're all cut off. We're dead in our sins. So then what are we going to do? Well, there's a word in Romans chapter 3 called forbearance. There's another word in Acts, the word winked. Remember the word God winked at ignorance in former times? Or in the former times, speaking of Old Testament saints, in the times, well, before Christ, through the ignorance of man, God winked. Well, winked means to overlook, or as our word in Romans 3, to forbear. Not willing yet to judge the whole human race because they're all sinful, they're all cut off from God. But God said, in this way will I not only bring man to me, but I will, through man, destroy the power of the devil to rule man anymore. Because the power of the devil is sin keeping us under judgment, having dominion over us. So God said, now all of you deserve to die. Death is upon every head of every child that's ever born. But I'm going to forbear you. I'm going to forbear you and deal with you in such a way that I will be able to relate to you. Now, he did this by what we call the law. He gave his people the law. Remember, he led them out of Egypt, and he said, now, I want you to understand who I am and what I want from you. So Moses goes to the mountain, and he comes back down off the mountain. He did it twice with the Ten Commandments, his tablets of stone. Now, what did these tablets tell us? One, he said, I am God. There can be no other gods. And these people start thinking like we would today. You know, I put a lot of things before God. I pursue a lot of things in this life, and God isn't at the top of the list. I'm devoted to a lot of things, and very little of it's God. I'm in this life. It's all about me, and it's not about God. I don't see God as the supreme need in my life. And he said, don't have any other gods before you. Has anybody had broken that? Man looks at that law, and he goes, whoa. Second law? He said, don't make a graven image of me. Don't make something and call it God and then worship it. Don't take a cross, for example, and have somebody grave a Jesus hanging on a cross and hang it up somewhere and then attach your devotion to that image. Don't do that. Jesus is not on a cross for one thing. And he's alive. He's not dead. So don't get attached to that and don't do that. You don't need images. You don't need birds hanging around your neck calling it the Holy Ghost. You don't need doves. You don't need statues of saints all around the room to go bow to them and pray to them. Those poor souls can't help you anyway. Only one. That's Jesus. So he said, secondly, don't make images, call it God, and worship it. And thirdly, he said, you be careful how you use my name and what you add my name to and what context my name is used. And today people use the name of God or Jesus Christ in all kinds of difficult situations or angry situations or they're upset and they use these words or worse. You know, we probably said things that we shouldn't say. Oh, Lord. You ever done that? Isn't that vain? Who's Lord? You wouldn't say, oh, devil. Why'd you say, oh, Lord? Because of the obvious religious context. So that's first three commandments. And the fourth commandment was, he said, remember Sabbath day and keep it holy. There's one day a week that we're going to worship the Lord in principle because we're not under laws anymore. But each one of these laws had a principle. They're still applicable today. 
The Lord's Day is supposed to be a special day. It's not the day for sports and football and everything else that the world says. Oh, let's do it on Sunday. Let's do it on Sunday. The world has no regard for the Lord's Day. He said, but you should. And then the fifth, he said, honor your parents. You ever lie to your parents? You ever sass them? You ever told you not to do something, you did it anyway? Then you broke the law, didn't you? I know you don't want to admit this, but you did. You ever commit adultery? The next one, he said, thou shalt not commit adultery. You ever do that? Oh, no, I, that's one thing. That's one thing you can count on me I've never done. You ever looked on a woman to lust after her? Well, now, let's don't get personal. Jesus did. He said, if you look on a woman and you go, whoa, wow, man, you've already sinned. You have in your heart committed adultery. The next law was thou shalt not kill. Have you ever been angry at a person? So, man, if I had a stick, I'd whoop you over the head with it. Well, that's what it takes to murder. You didn't commit the act. You didn't commit the act of adultery, but you're guilty. You didn't take that stick and hurt somebody, but the seeds of it are there. You're guilty. Killing. How many doctors have performed abortions? Their hands are full of blood, the Bible describes that. Taking innocent lives. You suppose they're all guilty? Have they killed? How about the next one? You know, you're not to covet your neighbor. That's like stealing. You shouldn't want what he's got or try to get it or take it. His wife, his stuff, whatever he's got. Or how about the last one? You're not bearing false witness against your neighbor or lying. The Ten Commandments represent the law because it represents how holy God wants us to be. Don't do any of these things. And we did every one of them. We can't point to one of them we didn't do. And yet, in the Ten Commandments, there's no mercy in it. It would be like if I was driving down the road and Chuck pulled me over and I was going 55.001 miles per hour. Am I guilty? Oh, come on. Am I guilty? Come on. Zero, zero point one over the legal limit. Come on, am I guilty? Now, what, you're being merciless. <laughs> but there's no mercy in the law. There's nothing in the law except violation. If you cross the line, didn't sin mean miss the mark? If you go over the mark, just that much. Are you guilty? If you went 55.001 miles per hour, are you a lawbreaker? Then you go to the law and say, have mercy on me. The law says, I don't have anything to do with mercy. I have to do with justice. Everything is justice. You're guilty. God was showing his people this. You're guilty. He gave them the law. He gave them all the sacrifices, which all of them pointed to Christ. Every sacrifice. All the feast days all pointed to what Christ did and, what, and how he did it. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. He said, they testify of me. On the road to Emmaus, he told those guys, starting with Genesis, he showed where he was in the whole. I'd love to have that tape. The whole Bible. But you look at the law, the people were under the law, trying to keep the law, trying to earn God's favor, and yet while they did three things really perfect, they did one thing wrong. And if you did one thing wrong, if you break one law, you've broken the whole thing. You're guilty. I'm not kind of guilty. I'm not mostly right, but some guilty. You are guilty. The law folds its arms, looks at you, and says, I demand justice. You have broken my law. You must pay. The guy that broke the law said, I can't pay. I, there's nothing I can do. How am I going to pay? In the whole legal system and all the sacrifices, there's nothing in there that can take away all my sins. They begin to realize that after a while because, you see, Galatians 3 talks about the law being a schoolmaster. The law was a teacher. It was to show us something that we had never seen. It was to bring to light something that we need to see. And man began to see how offensive he was to God. 
especially the Pharisees, the religious people. They were so religious and so holier than thou, and yet they violated the law as much as anybody. Jesus told them once, he said, you have made the law to no effect by your traditions, the thing you put above the law, you violated the whole thing. So Leviticus chapter 1, here's what happened in the law. In God's forbearance, how can a sinful man approach a holy God? How can he do it? How can God allow a sinful man to approach him and meet his needs? God's holy. Or how can God, let's look at it this way, in his forbearance, in his tolerance, how can God allow you to come before him in such a way that this whole process reveals how sinful you are? So we'll do it with the law. Now, Leviticus 1. Leviticus chapter 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, and he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. There's so much said in the first few verses here that we could spend a long, long time here talking about it. For example, the words bring and offering in verse 2. You see the words bring and offering. Bring me an offering. Well, that's pretty simple. Bring me an offering. Well, in the Hebrew, these two words, the words bring and offering, are the same root Hebrew word. The second word, offering, is what we get our word korban from in the New Testament. That is offered, dedicated to God. So here's the picture. Bring means to approach. And offering means that which approaches. Bring an offering. Why must man bring an offering, a certain animal that has been examined by the priest and is suitable, is without spot, blemish, or any such thing, an animal that is pure and clean? Why does a man have to bring an animal to God? Why is there between God and man a mediator without which man cannot approach God? Man couldn't just walk into the tabernacle there and just start, oh, God, he couldn't just come boldly to the throne of grace. He wasn't allowed to. He was sinful. So how is God going to tolerate a sinful man? He said, well, between you and me, there must be a go-between. There must be a mediator, somebody between us. That's somebody or that's something that I will accept. In this case, it was an animal, sheep, goats, bulls, so forth. And these animals had to be perfect. For if there was not something perfect and clean before man and God, man could not approach God. Man tried that once and he died. Now, what's God teaching us here? That your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and God that he will not hear. But if there is something offered by you acceptable to me between us, I will accept you in my presence. And we have a picture here of redemption, which is what Jesus is and what Jesus did. The Redeemer who came between man and God. It must remain that way today because we are still told that when you pray, you pray in the name. Right. Whatever you do in word or deed, you do it in the name. Our approach to God is still through Christ. We can do all things through Christ. God accepted Jesus and his offering of his life as a perfect, sinless offering on the cross. There was nothing wrong with him. He came before God himself. We'll get to that in just a minute. But he was perfect. And through him, we have our access now unto God. For the blood of sheep and goats could not remove our sins. But they were a type. They were animals that showed us what's going to happen down the road when the time came.
there was going to be blood between us and him because as we saw there in verse 4, that animal had to be slain. And in verse 5 it says, And he shall kill the bullock before the priest and his sons and bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about the altar, that is, for the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and so forth. Without the shedding of blood, you cannot approach God. But the blood that was shed was not yours, but it was something innocent, undeserving of death, but something that took your place between you. You get a doctrine here, one, identification. The identification is, is that you identify with the sacrifice. The sacrifice is perfect and complete and holy, and you're not. And as though it was you, you identify with this sacrifice. And secondly is the doctrine of substitution. This animal, its death, will be what you deserve, but it will die in your place, and God will accept that. The lamb, the animal, the cattle, whatever it was you sacrifice, is innocent, but it must die in your place. And then thirdly is imputation. The divinely acceptable quality of the sacrifice, because it's without spot and without blemish, is imputed to the offerer, the approacher, because the man by faith identifies with it. I'm doing this because I believe it's right. With Moses has given us the law. The priests have taught it to us. I recognize that, that I'm not worthy to come before God. So the only way I can come before God is to bring this innocent animal that did nothing, but on my behalf, between me and you, I offer this lamb and, and identify with it, and it becomes substitute in my place. Its righteousness supposedly is imputed to me, its cleanness was, and my ugliness is imputed, and it dies in my place. And then you get the idea after that is death. Not the death of the offer, but the death of the innocent. The just for the unjust, the right for the wrong. The lamb had nothing to do with my sin. This Bible says the same thing about Jesus. He became a sin offering. Him who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He did not become a sinner. He was not sinful when he was offered. He simply was a sin bearer. He took the place of the sinner between man and God. And in man's behalf, he bore his sin and he died. And in the exchange, God received the recognition of righteousness from God. When God raised Jesus from the dead. He's alive, friends. And it is through that way we come to God today. It's one of the things our communion is all about. It's a new way of living, a new covenant, a new agreement between man and God. The old has passed away. It's not done away with because the old is full of the principles that are taught in the new. We can't understand the new without reading the old. And so we have both. But Jesus has set aside a legal system which man could not live up to and set that aside because he fulfilled all the demands of the law for righteousness and was able to present himself as a lamb without spot unto God. And we know that God accepted him because he raised him from the dead. And because he did, we live today. Now, why do you suppose we have the law? Would you go to Galatians chapter 3? And the question there is asked, and we'll look at that, verse 19. Because in Galatians 13 and Hebrews chapter 9, a lot of what is written in Hebrews as well as the third chapter of Galatians, deals with this subject of sinful man, a righteous God, how we approach God and how God dealt with our sins so that we can live and have fellowship with him. In verse 19, why then the law? What then serves the law? What was its purpose? What was the purpose of the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. For how long? Till the seed should come. Who's the seed? Jesus Christ. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Jesus was the one who was promised. There will be a day that God will prepare for himself a body. 
and he will inhabit that body. And in that body, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, making it possible to have fellowship again with the world and to destroy the works of the devil in Hebrews 2. And so when this body was made and God lived in this body, the whole redemptive process began. It started with the law in revealing sinfulness to man. And man began to see how vile he was. You know, not very many people do. But God said enough, if you look at it, you read it, you'll see it, but not many people see this. They don't read it, they don't really care. Of just how selfish and vile and indifferent we are to God. We just turn our head, we speak what we want to speak, we act any way we want to act, do what we want to do, and so what? It says in verse 24 of chapter 3 there, again, that the law became a schoolmaster. This is the way God taught them back then about how sinful they were and how the law had no mercy, just justice. It requires justice. That's why Jesus had to die. The law could not say like a judge would say. You went into a judge and he said, well, how fast was this guy going a while ago? Going 55.001. Well, I think we're a little bit overdoing it here. You're all right, go. Because he had mercy. He said, well, he bent the law, didn't he? Well, a judge can do a whole lot of things whatever he wants to. But he can make a way for the law to be set aside. No longer are we under a law, but we're under the grace of God, which brings mercy. Hey, folks, if it wasn't for mercy this morning, we wouldn't have much of a chance because we'd all remain guilty because we could not but do wrong all the time. So Jesus, who is full of mercy and grace, came down and did what he did so that God can smile at you today and say, I want you to come boldly to the throne of grace. You're not denied your fellowship and presence with the Lord anymore. But because of Jesus who stands between you and me, there is one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Jesus Christ. He gave the law. We're sinful. We're under a curse. We're powerless to resist the law. And the law shows us that we are doomed. And the law made no provision for the removal of your sins, only for God to be tolerant of you and tolerant another year and tolerant another year. The great day of atonement was a continual reminder that our sins are ever with us. Every year we have to go through this every year. The priest has to go into the holy place every year to obtain eternal redemption for us. Every year has to keep going. We have to keep making sacrifice. We're constantly under the knowledge of sin. Well, what did Jesus do? Galatians 4. Now remember this, all of you that are going to witness to everybody. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, what did God do? God sent forth his son, notice, made of a woman, made under the law. And verse 5 tells us why he did. To redeem them that were under the law. Now, so far as I know, all men in this world, prior to Christ, everybody was born under the law. There was a curse on the whole human race. And now when the fullness of time came, when the right time came, God sent forth his son. Again, he prepared a body for himself. He became the God-man. God sent his son and his blood redeemed us. And then what made his blood pure and nobody else's blood pure? What was it about Jesus that made him different from everybody else so that his blood would be accepted? What about the great and holy prophets, the Jeremiah's or the Isaiah's or, or the Moses's? I mean, what about people like that? Were they not suitable to die in somebody's place? They're all born under sin. Well, Jesus born of a woman. Wouldn't that make him born under sin? Why is it the blood of Jesus was so special? Let me give you three reasons this morning. You need to know this. You ought to know this as Christians. Number one, because he was virgin born. 
talking about why his blood would be holy and pure, suitable to be shed for the sins of man, all of mankind, from the beginning, of, from Adam up to Jesus, all men were doomed. All we like sheep have gone astray. There is none righteous, not even one. Now here comes Jesus. The Bible story is that he was born of a virgin, a young lady. They say she was very young. I don't know how old she was. I wasn't there, but I'm sure she was proper age. She was engaged to be married or espoused to Joseph. And while they were espoused during this time of espousal, we had to write a divorcement to get out of even engagement. While she was engaged to him, the Lord had appeared to her and placed in her womb where that egg was at whatever point in the whole process, once a month, it goes through that tube. At the certain point, the Holy Spirit willed whatever God did it, and that seed became a living person. Now, she never had a man to cohabitate with her so that a human being was produced by a man. There's no seed of death in here. There's something from God above, touched something from earth below. He was born of a woman. Therefore, he was very human. Jesus called himself many times the son of man. He had a natural body, just like you and I have a natural body, because he was born in a natural body. Conception all the way through until the time he went to the cross, it was in a natural body that experienced pain and anguish and no doubt loneliness and just something else. Oh, he would never do that. Well, Hebrews talks about it. said, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like we are. He was in all points tempted like we're tempted, and he never sinned. He never gave in to the weakness of sin. He never did anything wrong. He never lied. He never sassed. He never disobeyed his parents. He never did anything wrong. He never failed to do something that he should do. It was this divine attestation on a human being that a divinely appointed moment of God was on this man's life, and he was as much God as he was man. He was the son of man. He was the son of God. He had two natures. He had the nature of a man. He had to have that. How could he die if he was only God? God was in Christ. And if he wasn't a man, then how could we identify with him? How can you relate to something that's not like you? How could I aspire to be like Jesus if I only see him as God? And yet he was God. He was able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was able to say, I am the image, the physical representation of the invisible God. That's Hebrews 1. If you have seen me, you have seen him. I am he. Joshua saw me. Gideon saw me. Moses saw me. In the pre-New Testament day, he was always who he is. He said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is a visible representation of the invisible God. And God was actively involved there. But at the same time, Jesus was also a man. Listen to me. This is important. Jesus, as a man, had to yield to the will of God just like you do. Because he was a man. He had a will. He had a soul. He had a human soul. That's the way it works. That's where your intellect is. That's where your will is. Jesus learned obedience, didn't he? He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He grew in wisdom, just like you have to. He said, I came to do the will of my father. I always do his will. I speak what he tells me to say. I do what he shows me to do, John writes. 
So we see a man who is an example for us to follow in his steps. And at every turn of the page in the Bible, you see a perfect man. A man without fault. But he had to be. Because the law demands not one single miscue. Not even one. And he had to fulfill the law on the terms of the law. Yes, he was guided by God inside of him. He was very much a man. He was very much God. God was his father. Mary was his mother. He was not born of man. He was born of God. Do you see that? He was born through a woman, but his father was God. Therefore, the blood that coursed through his veins was not tainted with Adam's sin. He was pure. He was sinless and a spotless lamb. He is called, Jesus is called, the Lamb of God. Why is he called the Lamb of God? Because he is God's offering for the sins of all man. That Lamb's bloodshed was sufficient to save the whole human race, and it will be effective to save all of those that God has called. Power in the blood to remove every vile thing you've ever done, every ugly, thoughtless nasty thing you've ever done in your life. There's power in his blood as far as God is concerned to remove it so that you can now come before God. It's no more. It's no more. Jesus bore it away. Jesus died and shed his blood for you to remove it. The slate between you and God are clean. You are now justified just as if I'd never sinned because of the power of the blood of Jesus on your behalf. So he was virgin born, and being virgin born, he was only begotten. Remember John 3, 16, John 1, 14, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten. Only begotten comes from two words, mono and genes. Monogenes, they call it, but it's monogenesis. Only one of a kind or stock, or type. There's never been any other human being like Jesus. We just saw that. Nobody else was ever born like this. He was born naturally like you are. But there's never been a God-man. He was the only one ever born. That's why there cannot be life in other planets that need redemption. There's not human life in all them billions and gillions of things out there because there is only one who died only once and once lives forevermore. We got it on planet Earth, the little grain of salt in the wherever. Now, secondly, his blood is pure and clean and is able because of his sinless life. As I've already said, he lived a sinless life. Listen to this that Paul wrote. For by one man's disobedience, sin entered, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So his obedience is the antithesis of Adam's disobedience. Adam disobeyed, we died. Jesus obeys, we live. That's the deal. That's the way it works. Secondly, Hebrews 9, 14 says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? He was sinless. Jesus lived a strict and holy life for you. He didn't do what he wanted to do. The natural man would love to have. He lived a strict and holy life for one reason, to redeem you. While we're at the rock concert acting like a fool, Jesus was living a holy life so that you do not have to die and perish in your sins. You can be saved. You can be because of what he was willing to do. And he lived, as the Bible said, without spot unto God. Where we saw second. Corinthians 5.21, a while ago, for him who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him or in Christ. He did that for us. I'm not looking at people that deserve this. I look in the mirror and say, I don't deserve this. I think of all the ways I have grumbled and complained about church in my lifetime sermons, grouchy about, not even grateful, not even thankful. 
And sometimes you just stop long enough and get quiet long enough and let God speak at least quietly once to you. You begin to see how ugly we really are before God. And to think that God would send his own son to die for people like us. Why would he do that? He wants your fellowship. He doesn't want to disjudge you. God takes no delight in the blood of bulls and goats. What happened with Jesus was such a terrible thing when it happened on the cross. Remember, there's one time that he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, the last thing he ever said is, to thy hands I commit my spirit. The folks out west try to say that he died and he went to hell and he was in agony and in hell. That's blasphemy. The last thing he ever said was, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The body was buried. It didn't decay because he came back into it. It was raised up. A different kind of body now. Walked through walls. Yet it could eat. Isn't that interesting? But there he was, holy and pure without flaw, without blemish, born of a virgin, the only one of his kind, and lastly, thirdly, the blood that was in Jesus is called the blood of God. Would you turn to Acts 20 and look at verse 28, the blood of God. Is there such a thing in the Bible as the blood of God? Did God have blood? Well, God is spirit, but his lamb did. His lamb did. It was called the Lamb of God. And in chapter 20 of Acts and verse 28, take heed therefore unto yourselves. He's talking to the elders at Ephesus. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. Boy, that doesn't work much anymore either, does it? Let me stop for just a minute. To feed, that's what a ministry is called to do is to feed the church of God. Feed is the word shepherd, poimeno. It means to shepherd, to lead, to guide, to give them things from God that will make them more like God wants them to be. It's not building it bigger and better and what kind of a fundraising drive or how can we get more sinners in here? It's feed the church. I could tell you that and I'm sure this will be taken wrong by somebody in, in the world. Our mission in here is not to see how many sinners we can bring in here to get saved. The church is not a gathering of sinners. It's a gathering of the redeemed. The redeemed who are brought together to learn and to be taught and to be fed. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, didn't he? He said, here, feed the flock. Feed the church of God. Don't let them die and be malnourished and think they're all right because they're busy like the people who've obeyed the law. We're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Feed them. And notice the last part of this, to feed the church of God, which he, God, has purchased with what? His own blood. That's what he did. He purchased with his own blood. No other blood could qualify. Therefore, when Jesus offered himself without spot to God, he was sinless. He was born in a sinful world, born like a man. He was tempted like men are tempted, like you're tempted. The allurements the devil offered him the world and fame and fortune. He was tempted, yet he never yielded to the temptation for one reason, to redeem our sorry souls to redeem us, to redeem us. That's why he did it. Do you think you deserve that? I don't. I don't deserve it, but he did it. And if you look in Hebrews 9 as we close, in Hebrews chapter 9, he said this, our Redeemer, praise God forevermore, verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no release. There is no forgiveness. Without what? For without the shedding of blood, there is no release from our sins. Verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the 
pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ, verse 24, is not entered into the holy places made with hands like earthly tabernacles and temples, which are figures of the true, they were types, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is our mediator. He went before God with his own blood stood before God three days. I don't know. He stood there and the blood and the sacrifice he made was sufficient for the law to be justified, peaced. And once the law was fulfilled, a human being has fulfilled all the terms of the law and has presented himself on behalf of all those who fell because of the law. And now the law is set aside as a means of how to be right with God. It's not done away with, it's set aside. And now there is a new and living way. And this new and living way is the physical Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And by faith, we enter in. We have to believe all of this. I don't know how many people do, but we have to believe all of this. Look at verse 26. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise God, praise God, oh, my soul. Well, what does that mean? I am now free to come before the presence of the Almighty God to receive mercy and grace in time of need. I no longer need to go to some innocent animal and die for an innocent lamb has already died in my place and he now stands as my deliverer, my redeemer, the one who ransomed me, the one who claimed me as his own and represented me before the Lord. Now I'm free. I am free from my sins. God has sent his lamb and has saved me. How do I get this? How does it apply to my life? Chapter 10, how has this become active in my life and the power of it? Verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's how you draw near, folks. If you don't draw near because you really believe this, and you're convinced that this is something that has been done and you are extremely grateful for it. If you don't draw near that way, a conscious acknowledgement of thanksgiving and praise for this. It's what in the communion table is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 11 of taking it unworthily, indifferently. It's just a tradition we do it and with no thought of what it represents. If you do it that way, you're guilty of the whole thing. But he said, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's the word of God. He hath made a propitiation for us and by faith in his blood in Romans 3, we're released. Folks, everything in this life from the little things to the big things, is made applicable for you by faith. Amen. The statements of the Bible will stand forever. This has been done. This is said. This is done. The price has been paid on and on and on. And there it is. But you can't just say, well, the price has been done, so I'm all. No, you must believe this has been done. And there will be evidence in your life that you believe this has been done by the way you live, by the effect this word has on you. It's just like a man approached God with, with much, oh God, because here's a little animal that's going to die for me. I'm a dog. God says you're a dog. And look at Jesus. Jesus died for dogs. Now, if we walk in the light, if, if we walk in the light as he is the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. And every one of us has to make that decision. 
It's a moral choice we all must make. It doesn't automatically happen. It's a choice. If we walk in the light as he is the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Now, as far as I know, that's the way that reads. In fact, as I look at it, it reads that. But if we walk in the light as he is the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So let me ask you a question in closing before we take communion. What's the basis of our fellowship with each other? What draws us together? You say, well, Jesus Christ, he's the one thing we have in common. What did he do to make it possible? He shed his blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So when Jesus shed his blood, first time in the garden, first time he shed blood was there. He shed his blood in the courts of Pilate when they beat him and all of this, and they smacked him, put the thorns on his head. He shed his blood and they beat his back. I imagine he was very weak by the time he got to wherever it was. They hung him on a cross. But he shed his blood and had enough left that he could offer it into heaven also made eternal redemption for us. And here we sit today, busy with life, full of things to do and aggravated worries. And Jesus says, would you just pause for a moment and think about what you just heard? And for a moment, be thankful. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Grant us this morning that measure of piety that we should all have when we come to relating to Jesus, thinking of him, living our lives. So busy, Lord. We're so busy. We've got so much to do. And yet, at this moment now, we've come to this communion table to partake of the bread and the cup, to be reminded once again that Jesus died so that we can live and was raised again, so he's coming back. Grant us this morning grace and favor as we pause this brief time now to ponder the meaning of all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.